We have the opportunity tonight to continue to study in our series, Defending Your Faith. And I'm excited about tonight's message because it is a focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His deity. And this should be an exciting study for all of us because all who name the name of Christ ought to rejoice in both the humanity and in the deity of Christ. You know that over the last two sessions in our series entitled Defending Your Faith, we have concerned ourselves with the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. We've learned that God eternally exists in three distinct persons, all co-equal, co-eternal, and functioning in the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Trinity is discussed, it behooves us to discuss the matter very specifically of the deity of Christ. Because often when you begin to discuss matters like the Trinity, someone will inevitably raise their hand and ask the question, well, what about the deity of Christ? And of course, those who are simply asking the question want to know about that doctrine, and those who are antagonistic to it are ready to attempt to refute it. So the inevitable question comes up, and it is this. Is Jesus, who appears to be a man, truly God? Or to put it another way, how can God become a man? And in this particular message, we want to concern ourselves with this very, very crucial question. Now, as any teacher would want to do, you'd want to marshal all of the data regarding such a doctrine in a very coherent and livable way. We want to be able to say in the time that we have, what is the biblical doctrine of the deity of Christ? And that's a very, very tough idea to follow through in about 40 to 45 minutes. There is so much, not only in our Bibles, but in the history of theology, that allows us to understand and then articulate in such a very short time span the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And as I labored over these things, I asked myself in a number of different ways, how can I present the deity of Christ in a short time span and yet give you as much as I possibly can so that you can study these things? And so what I've decided to do is to give you three ways that the Bible affirms that Jesus Christ is God. Three ways, three processes of development as we study the Scripture that affirms the deity of Christ. The first one is this, and it's very simply stated. Jesus is expressly called God in the Bible. Simply put, Jesus is called God in the Bible. Now, unlike our discussions related to the Trinity in both the Old and New Testaments, we said that that was mostly inferential. It was implicit in many ways. You had to formulate that doctrine uh, through a lot of biblical data marshaled together to come up with that truth. It is, it is a doctrine taught in Scripture, but it's something that you have to arrive at very carefully. When you talk about the deity of Christ, you're talking about something, first of all, that the Bible explicitly teaches. 
And that's what I want to tell you regarding this first way that the Bible affirms this, that Christ himself is expressly called God in a number of places, several places in fact. The Bible affirms that Jesus has divine attributes. I wish we could study them all. I wish I could just give them to you and we had more of a Bible study format tonight and you could write them all down and you would affirm with me the divine attributes of Christ. For instance, He is omnipresent. The Bible affirms that in Ephesians 4.10. He's omniscient according to John 21.17 and Acts 1.24. He's immutable according to Hebrews 13.8. He has sinlessness and holiness according to Acts 3.14 and 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 7.26. 1 Peter 2.22 and 1 John 3.5. All of those passages affirm the divine attributes of Christ. And we would affirm that because they are references to divine things, then Christ must be divine. But did you know that even apart from some of those passages which affirm the attributes of divinity toward Christ that the Bible also expressly calls Him God. In fact, over 22 passages in the New Testament, in some form or another, ascribe divinity to Christ. Now, admittedly, there are some of those passages which are disputed. Even within evangelical circles, there are some who debate whether or not some of these passages actually are calling Christ God. For example... In Acts 20.28, when it says that Christ gave His blood for the church, and it says there about Christ a reference to God, some people think that that is more a reference to God the Father than it is to Christ. In Acts 20.28. In Hebrews 1.9, the first John 5.20 that speaks about Christ, it says this is the true God and eternal life. But you could grammatically make that more a reference to God the Father, who's also referred to in that passage. So admittedly, there are some disputed passages regarding this statement of divinity as accorded or affirmed about Christ. And I know that we don't have time to go through all 22 references, especially some of these disputed passages. So what I want to do tonight is I want to go through about five passages which are not disputed at all within evangelicalism. These are probably the most undisputed declarative statements about the divinity of Christ, where He is expressly called God. And the first one I want to go to is John chapter 1. So I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. And again, I wish we had time to go through all of the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. But at least we want to discuss initially John 1.1. A very familiar passage to all of us. And you know that John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now John 1.1, as I just read it, makes three separate declarations about the Word, about Christ. First, it says that He was in the beginning. In other words, He existed before creation and even before time itself began. 
The second declaration it says about Christ was that he was in an active and intimate relationship with the Father because it says, and the Word was with God. There was an intimacy of relationship. He had a face-to-face relationship with God the Father. And then thirdly, it says he in fact is God himself. And the Word was God. Christ then is the eternal Word. And because the statement reads, and the Word was God, it makes Him personally distinct from the Father and yet in one essence with the Father. And of course in verse 14 it says, and the Word became flesh. And we know that that is clearly a reference to Christ. And that Word dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory as the only begotten full of grace and truth. And then I want you also to notice John 1.18, because this is a very familiar passage and a most exciting one. In John 1.18 it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now how many of your translations say the only begotten Son... Now see, there are several of you that have a translation that says the only begotten Son. And that is possible, for some of the early Greek manuscripts do contain the word for Son in the Greek text, huios. But most of the textual critics in evangelicalism believe that the better manuscripts contain the word theos. So that the text would would read ha monogenes theos. The only begotten God. And so that really is a wonderful affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That's why translations like mine, the updated New American Standard, says the only begotten God. And even if it does say the only begotten Son, some of your translations may even have the only begotten Son, comma, God. Because either way, it's still a reference to the deity of Christ. Christ has explained or exegeted or revealed who God is. When we think about God the Father, we can't know Him, we can't see Him because He's a spirit. He does not have flesh and bones. But when Christ came into the world, He's the perfect expression of God the Father, and we can see Him, and He is that one who reveals God the Father. The affirmation of John 1.18 is this, Jesus Christ is the only Son of the Father, and He is the only one who's fully revealed God to the world. And that because He is in very nature God Himself. There's a second passage which expressly calls Jesus God in the Bible, and that's John 20, 28. It's at the end of John's Gospel, and this is that very familiar passage which speaks about doubting Thomas. When doubting Thomas was given the opportunity here in John 20, 28 to literally touch the person of Jesus... He exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Now there are some, specifically some Jehovah's Witness and no doubt some within the Way International and some of these other cults that deny the deity of Christ who would say, well, what 
Thomas is really doing there is he's really making a hyperbolic statement. He's speaking in hyperbole. He's so excited about seeing the person of Christ that he just sort of blurts out in an imprecise way that Jesus is his Lord and his God. Well, you would imagine that's the way they would have to try to explain that passage because it explicitly says, my Lord and my God. Plus, we have to give Thomas a little bit more credit than that. He has just seen the risen Christ. And Christ is speaking to him and he says, Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my theos, my God. Now you would assume that if Jesus was not God, then he would immediately say to Thomas, don't call me God. There is only one God, and that's the Father, and I am not He. You would assume that He would say, don't ascribe worship to me. Don't bow down before me. Don't do any of that. I'm a man just like you. But He doesn't. In fact, in the next verse, it says, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see me and yet believed. Blessed are they who see me and know who I am. And when they believe who I am, God in human flesh, they're blessed. In fact, it's interesting that it's linked up right to the next two verses, which again affirm the theme of John's gospel. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's an affirmation of His deity. And that believing you might have life in his name. No, doubting Thomas ceases to be doubting Thomas because he knows exactly who Jesus is. He is his Lord and his God. There's a third passage, Romans 9.5. Romans 9.5, and it expressly calls Jesus Christ God. The Apostle Paul is in anguish over his Jewish kinsmen. They've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Paul knows it's even more egregious than that because he knows that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he is God himself who is blessed over all forever. And he says in Romans 9, 5 about the Jews, whose are the fathers, that is the Jews, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. And that is a doxology of praise to the person of Christ. It's saying that He is the supreme authority over the whole universe and therefore is blessed forever. In other words, that blessing idea is like the psalmist who says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Paul is effusive in his praise of Jesus Christ. And he wants the Jews to affirm that Christ is not only to be seen by them as their Messiah, but He's to be seen by them as God in human flesh. He's God blessed forever. Amen. He's the supreme authority over all life and all creation. It's a great text. It's affirming the deity of Christ. This is the kind of text that you would want to take one of your Jewish friends to and say, listen, the Apostle Paul, being a Jew himself, affirms as all Jews must affirm one day and will affirm, that Jesus is God-blessed forever. And there's another. We spoke about it 
last time. That's Hebrews 1.8. Hebrews 1.8. That's that familiar passage I told you that I use often with the Jehovah's Witness who might come to my door. Hebrews 1.8. This is actually a verse which is a quotation of Psalm 45.6. But the writer to Hebrews borrows it and gives it an explicit, explicit reference to the deity of Christ. The context is that Christ is superior to all angels. That's the point that the writer to Hebrews is making. And because he's superior to angels, in verse 5 it says, For to which of the angels did he, God, the Father, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. You see that? Even there in verse 6, it's a reference to the deity of Christ because it says, let all the angels of God worship Christ, worship the Son. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. There God the Father is explicitly calling the Son God. And he even says that this God has a throne, and that throne is to be forever and ever. Christ is already in chapter 1 being referred to as the Son, verse 5, the firstborn, verse 6, which means the preeminent one, the object of angelic worship, the Lord of creation, and God's exalted co-regent. Boy, this is a great, great chapter on the deity of Christ. It's a wonderful affirmation of the superiority of Christ over everything, including all of the angels, all of the created order, everything. And there's a fifth passage. Actually, there are two. In Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, in Titus chapter 2, as well as, by the way, 2 Peter 1.1. It really says the same thing so we can group it together. These verses can be put together because they essentially both use the title of Christ as this, Our God and Savior. Our God and Savior. This phraseology, Our God and Savior, was used at that time very often, most often, of course, referring to God the Father, but here in Titus 2.13, it's a reference to Jesus Christ. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You see it there? It's so clear. It's so expressive of the deity of Christ. Second Peter 1.1 says the very same thing. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Christ is not only our Savior, but He's our God as well. Now, if you wrap all of these verses together, and I only gave you about five or six of them, those are the, those explicit references which call Jesus Himself Theos. He is God. And if that's all we knew, we could still affirm Him as God. But there's more. And there's a second way that we can affirm the deity of Christ in our study. And that is this. Jesus 
performs the functions that only God can do. Jesus performs the functions that only God can do. Jesus is not only referred to as God Himself, but He is the one who is performing the works on earth that only God can do. Jesus is divine because of the very works He performed. Over and over and over again, the Bible speaks of God the Father as the one who is performing works with manif- which manifest the reality of His deity. If you looked back in your Old Testament and you wrote down these verses, Psalm 104, verse 24. Psalm 104, verse 27, verse 30. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25 and 28. Romans 11.36, Hebrews 2.10. In all of those passages, both from the Old and from the New Testament, you would see that God the Father is the one who is said to be performing these miraculous works, whether it be creation or in time. And yet, as you begin to study the New Testament, you begin to realize that the shift is away from God the Father being the one who is performing these works, and it is ascribed now to Jesus Christ. You say, how so? Well, let me give you a few of them. I will sort of group them together so you can have them clearly in your mind. Number one, Jesus is spoken of as the creator and sustainer of all. If you were to look at some of these Old Testament passages, either some of the ones that I've mentioned or doing even a study on your own, you would realize that over and over and over again, God the Father is the one who is said to be the creator and sustainer of all. And yet when you move into the New Testament, you begin to see that Christ is the one who is being said to be the creator and sustainer of all. You say, where? Well, I just read to you John 1.1. If you were to go on to read in John's Gospel, you would read the very clear affirmations of the creativity of Christ. John 1.3, it says, All things came into being through Him, a reference to Christ. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's a reference to Christ. He's the one who has created it all. Nothing has come into being that has come into being apart from Christ. You remember when we studied through the book of Colossians? And we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, In Him all things in heaven and on earth were created. Can't be any clearer than that. In Christ all things, whether in heaven or on earth, were created. Verse 17 even goes farther. In Him all things hold together. He holds everything together. God the Father is spoken of as the one who holds everything together in the Old Testament. Christ is the one who is spoken of as holding all things together in the New Testament. It's a package deal, we might say. In Acts chapter 3, verse 15, it calls Christ the author of life. Well, isn't that an amazing statement? Here, Here this man who is ministering on earth is being called himself the author of life. That's a reference to the deity of Christ. It can't be anything else but. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says this about our dear Christ. 
In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Well, that's an incredible statement about Christ. He is to... To be worshipped. He deserves our praise because He is the one who is the creator and sustainer of all. Secondly, not only is He the creator and sustainer of all, not only is God spoken of in that way and Christ is spoken of in that way, but also Jesus taught and healed with divine authority. Jesus taught with divine authority and He healed with divine authority as well. Only God can do that. How many times have we penetrated into Mark's gospel? And how many times have I said to you, as we've gone through it, only God can heal in this way. Only God could do these things. That's why the people were so stunned when Jesus came on the scene and did all that He did. That's why they were continually saying they're amazed at His teaching and His healing. For instance, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and Matthew 9, 35, the Bible says that Jesus was going about teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Only God can do that, folks. Only God could heal every disease and every sickness. I mean, you would assume that if someone were an imposter, if someone who had no claim on deity would be able to heal some, but not all, at least on a human level or maybe even on a a level that would appear as though healing had occurred. But Jesus always healed immediately and instantaneously, and He healed every kind of disease. In fact, even the history books around that time in Palestine said that virtually Jesus eradicated disease and sickness in that area. It's amazing. Only God could do something like that. In Mark 1.22 and Mark and Matthew 7.28, it says the people were amazed at His teaching because He taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. I mean, not just His healing. I mean, you would be able to say about His healing, this is incredible, this must be God manifest in the flesh, but also His teaching. He taught in such a way that people were stunned, astonished, amazed. And they compared it with the teaching of the scribes and they said, there's something different here. When the scribes teach, it's one thing. When Christ teaches, it's entirely another. In Luke chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, Matthew 9, 8, the Bible says, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. The crowd was filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. No, no mere human could teach and heal with divine authority like Christ. He has to be more than a mere man. That's why it amazes and also sickens me when I read some writer, some author, some so-called scholar who goes through all of these gospel accounts And they immediately say something like this, and they have many times, like this Jesus seminar that I've referred to a couple times. And they say, well, obviously this cannot attest to a true and valid statement in the New Testament because obviously Jesus 
cannot teach in this way or heal in this way. And they'll go on to dismiss 80 plus percent of the New Testament because they say, well, if this is true, if he taught in this way and if he really did heal in this way, it really can't be Jesus because no man could do this. And really what it attests to is that they're no different than the scribes and the Pharisees. All of the scholarship they have can be put in a paper bag and burned because Jesus taught and healed with divine authority. He is God, my friends. Thirdly, Jesus raised the dead. Jesus raised the dead. You want to affirm the deity of Jesus Christ? How about the son of the widow Nain? Of Nain in Luke 7. How about the daughter of Jairus? You remember we went through that in Mark 5? How about the raising of Lazarus in John 11? Those are just three examples in the gospel accounts where it says explicitly that Jesus raised them from the dead. And did you know that in the Old Testament it says only of God the Father that He has the power to raise the dead? In 1 Samuel 2.6, the Bible says, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. See, again, the Old Testament, it's the Lord God. It's God the Father. He kills and raises up. He puts one here and the other there. And in the New Testament, Jesus raises people from the dead. He's God in human flesh. There's no question about it. And it's not even just that He raises people from the dead. He is the one who has the power to grant life itself. Some of these passages in the Gospels are incredible to me in this regard. For instance, in John chapter 5, verse 21, listen to what the Bible says about Christ and His ability to grant life. John 5, 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, Even so, the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Now, folks, how could anybody deny the deity of Christ when it says in one verse that the Father does that and the Son does that? I mean, you have to be incredulous. You have to be unbelieving to deny this. It says it so clearly. This is so indefensible, this issue of denying the deity of Christ. You you can't even defend it. I mean, all you have to do is read the New Testament this time with your eyes open. Because the deity of Christ is so clear. In John chapter 6, verse 39, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Christ is saying that about Himself. He has the power to raise life even from the dead. Folks, only God can have regenerating power. Only God. And Christ is God. In fact, the New Testament also says that Jesus, number four, forgives sin. Now, that's probably, for me, one of the most clear and explicit teachings that affirm the deity of Christ, because only God can forgive sin. You remember that account we studied long ago in Mark 2, verses 1 to 12, about the man who was lowered down through the roof, 
And all of the teachers were there and all of the crowd and they were pressing in on Christ and he was teaching. He was interrupted uh, by these men who were lowering this man down through the roof. They, they cut a hole in the roof and they were lowering this man down. And Jesus saw their great faith. And what did he say to the man? What was that? Oh, that was a baby. Uh, he said, your sins are what? Forgiven. Now, if I were to say to you in some sort of pronouncement, Todd Murray, your sins are forgiven. Now, anybody can say that. I could just say that. I could say that about anybody. You could say that about me. But the way that it affirmed the deity of Christ was he healed the man. See, I could never heal Todd of his obvious sicknesses. I could never do that. But I could say your sins are forgiven all day long. But never could I ever heal a person. And yet Christ said in that very text, in order that you may know that the Son has authority on earth, I say, man, rise up from that pallet and walk. And when he stood up on that pallet and he walked out of that place, I don't know about you, but I would have said, this man is God. In Luke chapter 7, in Acts chapter 5, in Colossians 3.13, it says that Jesus Christ is the forgiver of sins. Folks, only God can forgive sin. And Jesus Christ, if He forgives sins, is God. Number five, Jesus has the ability to grant salvation. Jesus has the ability to grant salvation. And again, if you go to the Old Testament, Psalm 62.2, Psalm 95.1, Jonah 2.9, which says, salvation is of the Lord. The Old Testament affirms that only God the Father is the one who can grant salvation. Only, only God the Father is the one who can say, you are now saved. You are now on your way to heaven. And yet in the New Testament it says over and over and over again that Jesus Christ is the one who grants salvation. Remember Matthew 1.21, he has come to do what? To save His people from their sins. Now that's an incredible statement. Right there in the first chapter of Matthew. Christ is the only one who has been brought to us by God to be the Savior of men. I love this. You're going to love this too. We'll be here all night. This is wonderful. In Titus chapter 1. Titus 1, 3. It says, but at the proper time... God manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, a reference to God the Father. So it refers to God the Father as God our Savior, the one who saves, the one who grants salvation. But immediately in verse 4, it says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You catch that? In verse 3, it's God the Father who is called the Savior. In verse 4, it's talking about Christ Jesus, our Savior. That's tremendous. In chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we're not to be pilferers, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. A reference again to God the Father. He's spoken there as God our Savior. But it also says that Jesus Christ is God our Savior. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Only a couple verses later. Apparently, 
Paul, when he was writing to Titus, didn't have any problem ascribing the saviorhood of God the Father and the saviorhood of Jesus Christ in the very same passage. Even in chapter 3, verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, verse 6, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see that? I mean, how, could, how could people miss this? This is so clear. Hebrews 5.9 says that Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation. Colossians 1.13 and 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's the one who has the ability to grant salvation. 1 John 5.11 says God the Father is the granter of salvation. And John 10.28 says Christ is is the granter of salvation. Oh, I just love these affirmations of the deity of Christ. Number six, Jesus has the authority to execute judgment. He has the authority to execute judgment. And this is a tremendous affirmation of the deity of Christ because in the Old Testament, as you know, God the Father was seen as the one who executed all judgment. It was always and forever spoken of God the Father as the one who executes judgment. But again, as soon as you come into the New Testament, it says Christ is the one who's been given judgment by God. In Acts 10.42, it says that Christ is the one who is to execute judgment. Acts 10.42. In Acts 17.31, it speaks of Christ as the one who is to execute judgment. Acts 17.31, it says... He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Christ is the one who will execute judgment. You say, yeah, but that's really saying that God the Father is doing it, but He's doing it through the Son. Well, why then does 2 Corinthians 5.10 say that we, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ? The judgment seat of Christ. John 5, 22 and 23 talks about the judgment of Christ. Matthew 7, 22 and 23, you know it says that there will be those who will come to Him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name cast out devils and in Your name do many wonderful works? And He will say unto them, what? I never knew you. And then He casts them into the eternal judgment. If Christ were not the one who is judge then why then does 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 say this? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You see, Christ is the one who's been given judgment. Oh, we could just go on and on with this, but enough to say that Jesus is the one who performs the works as we see them in the New Testament that only God can do. Only God can do these things. And then finally, as we conclude tonight, the titles and the names for God the Father. The titles and the names for God the Father are attributed to Jesus. Oh, I wish we had another hour where we looked at every single one of these passages. We don't have time tonight, but if you were ever to do a study, 
find a resource, find a book on theology, find a, a book expressing the affirmation of the deity of Christ, and try to find yourself all of the references to God the Father and Jesus Christ, which are one and the same and used interchangeably. Oh, it's wonderful. I only wrote down about 15 of them. I'm not going to go over every one of them, for which I know you're very thankful. But those are just 15 off the top of your head that you can affirm the deity of Jesus Christ because it says about Christ the same thing it says about God the Father. They're used interchangeably, these titles. You remember the most famous one probably, the I am statement? It says about God the Father, I am, Exodus 3.14. It says about God the Son, I am, John 8.58. It says about God the Father, I am the first and the last, Isaiah 44.6. It says about Jesus Christ the Son, I am the first and the last, Revelation 1.17. It says in the Bible, you remain the same, referring to God the Father, Psalm 102, verse 26. And it says about God the Son, you remain the same, Hebrews 1, 11 and 12. It says about God the Father, interestingly enough, which you may not have thought of before or read, Isaiah 45, 23, every knee will bow. Where does it say it in the New Testament? Philippians 2, that's right. It says about God the Father in Deuteronomy 32, 43, let all God's angels worship Him. We already read that in Hebrews 1.10, didn't we? God the Father says of God the Son, let all the angels of God worship Him. It says about God the Father in Psalm 102.25, you laid the foundation of the earth. It says about God the, Fa- God the Son in Hebrews 1, you laid the foundation of the earth. And many of these passages are direct parallels, direct quotations. One from the old, one from the new. One in the old affirming God the Father, one in the new affirming God the Son. You've heard this phrase, Joel 2.32, about God the Father. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Where have you heard that in the New Testament? Romans 10, very good. You've heard about God the Father being referred to in Isaiah 40, verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord. In Matthew 3.3, It is said of God the Son, prepare the way for the Lord. It says He will be a sanctuary about God the Father. Isaiah 8.14, it says the same thing about the Son in 1 Peter 2.8 and Romans 9.33. It says, you led captives, you gave gifts to men about God the Father in Psalm 68.18. It says the same thing about God the Son in Ephesians 4.8. It calls in the Bible God the Father Lord in Exodus 6.2. It calls God the Son Lord in Acts 2.36. I mean, it's just over and over and over again a reference to Jesus Christ as possessing full deity. All of the attributes, all of the titles, all of the functions. It says of God the Father in Deuteronomy 10.17 that He is the Lord of Lords. It says about Jesus Christ in Revelation 17.14 and 19.16, You are the Lord of Lords. Folks, you can't have a title like that, unless you are God. That's just the way it is. It says about God the Father in Psalm 23, 1, He's our shepherd. It says about Jesus Christ in John 10, He's our shepherd. It says about God the Father in Psalm 24, 7, He is the King of glory. It says about God the Son in Matthew 25, He is the King of glory. 
It says about God the Father in Isaiah 45:11, "You are the Holy One." And it says about God the Son in John 6:69, "You are the Holy One." And those are all the ones you could write with your left hand. Now you need to start with your right hand. And just keep going down the page and find all of these references. And my challenge to you would be this. Every time you find an interchangeable title or function of deity and one is a reference to God the Father and one is a reference to God the Son, just take a moment and pray. Just take a moment and praise God. Just take a moment and say, God, you are manifested eternally in three divine persons and I worship each one of you. Robert Morey, who's written a very, very wonderful book called The Trinity, Evidence and Issues, says this, We have found that the authors of the New Testament affirmed the concept of the deity of Messiah. They did this in so many ways and on so many occasions that no doubts remain. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, is the Lord God manifested in the flesh. God of very God and man of very man. He is the Savior whom we love, worship, and obey. The Trinitarian has discovered the secret that to know Jesus is to love Him. To love is to serve Him. To serve Him is to worship Him. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion be unto Him forever and ever. Amen. Folks, don't ever for one minute doubt that the Bible affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. And if someone were to come to you and they would deny it, you are armed and ready. Let's pray together. Father, we want you to know that we love you. And we affirm with our whole heart that you are the one spoken most notably in the Old Testament as the Lord, the Lord of lords, the shepherd, the holy one, the one who judges his people, the one who grants salvation, the one who is omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient and holy and true and love and righteousness. And we as new covenant believers, we unpack our New Testament study. We find out that you, Father, the very one for whom we've affirmed all those things, are manifested in these days in the person of your Son, who is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent and holy and true and love. And he is the Lord and the Lord of lords and the shepherd and the Holy One. He is the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Lord, we affirm as Orthodox Christians that Jesus Christ is God. And we worship Him. We praise Him. We thank You for what He has done in granting us salvation and the affirmation that He will also one day raise us up. Oh Lord, we worship You. We praise You. 
Thank you for this study on the deity of Christ. May we truly be armed and ready to defend our faith against those who would challenge not only our faith, but challenge the integrity of the Word of God itself. We never need to fear, Lord, when we affirm your deity. We're doing so under your power and according to your word. May we live with confidence and boldness and sing hallelujah all our days because Jesus Christ is Lord. In his name we pray, amen.